So tonight, the plan is to finish up Revelation chapter 4. We may be able to get some into Revelation 5, but if not, that's okay. We're, we're still on schedule. We'll take a couple of classes after tonight to do Revelation chapter 5. But tonight, we really want to just finish up Revelation chapter Revelation chapter 4. For those who may be visiting with us for the first time, we want you to know that uh, for the last several weeks, we have uh, been on a journey through Revelation. We're going to be studying Revelation for the next several months. And tonight we are on Revelation 4. We uh, considered a few of the verses in Revelation 4 Sunday, but tonight we want to try to finish up the chapter. Remember, this chapter is typically called the throne scene. Someone tell me, someone tell me why is this chapter typically referred to as the throne scene? Someone raise your hand and give me a give us a good answer to that. Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. Say it again. I'm sorry. Because God is the central figure, you said, right? Absolutely. Lance, you have something you want to say, sir? It's uh, 17. The number of times the word throne is used in Revelation 4 and in Revelation 5 is 17. 17 times the word throne is used in, in these two chapters we're going to be studying for the next couple of weeks. And to go with what both of your comments were, which, is, which, is, which are good comments, this is about the throne of God. God the Father, God the Father on the throne. And I think, I think it is important that we make that distinction. I think you see a good distinction of that in these two chapters we're going to be studying over the next uh, few classes. Remember, there, is, there are times in the Bible where the word God is being used to refer to the Father, simply God the Father, but there are other times when the word God, like in Genesis 1, is being used to refer to those who are part of the Godhead. And that would be God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, we learn that there are three distinct persons who make up the Godhead. Here in Revelation 4, we're learning about God the Father, God the Father on his throne. But in Revelation 5, we're going to learn about God the Son, Jesus Christ, and how both of them are being worshipped in heaven because both of them are deity. So, so that's something important to be mindful of. Now, up to this point, up to Revelation 4, John has seen the risen Jesus in Revelation 1. Remember that? He saw Jesus victorious in glory, victorious over death in Hades. This caused John to fall down, fall down as a dead man. And Jesus gave him encouragement and told him to get up. He has work for him to do. And so in Revelation 1, we're introduced to the main character of the book, which is Jesus. He is victorious over death. He is a risen Savior. Revelation 2 through 3, this risen Savior, this one who has defeated and conquered death, personally addresses the seven churches of Asia. He wants the churches to know that he knows them. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they have, they have been up to. And then in Revelation chapter 4, we read about John being invited, the apostle John being invited into heaven to see the things going on behind the curtain, if you will, to see the Father, 
You see God on his throne. Remember, we said that what you find in Revelation 4 is very similar to things found in the Old Testament. This is very similar to what we find in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah the prophet was invited to see behind the curtain, to see God on his throne and spiritual beings going around the throne shouting, holy, 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 day and night. This is also very similar to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1. We're going to see that more clearly as we go through our text tonight. Like in the cases of Ezekiel and Isaiah, God is allowing John, the apostle John, to see something impressive and glorious before sending him out to preach a message, to preach a message to his people, to preach a message of victory for his people and judgment upon the enemies of his people. Now let's go through the text. In verses 1 through 4, in verses 1 through 4 of the chapter, we find the third door mentioned in Revelation. Remember, there were two doors prior to this door that you find in Revelation 4. That was the door mentioned with the church of Philadelphia. That door was open. Jesus was dining with that church in fellowship with that church. There's the closed door of Laodicea. The door was closed. They were not in fellowship with the Lord as they should have been. And Jesus is standing outside knocking at the door. This time, the door of Revelation 4 is open. It's already open. And John is invited in. This is John under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, being able to see things from heaven's perspective, from heaven's perspective. Don't make the mistake of literalizing this vision. This is not literal. I know it's hard for us not to do that because of our culture, but none of this is literal. Again, this is similar to things we find in the Old Testament, particularly in this case, Isaiah chapter, Isaiah 6. It is important for John to see things from heaven, heaven's perspective because from the earth perspective or from the physical perspective, if you were a Christian living in the first century, Okay, and I'm asking a question here. If you were a Christian living in the first century and you're losing your job, you're losing your source of income, you're being thrown in prison, you have family members being thrown in prison, you have family members being murdered and friends being murdered because they're Christians, you are being, people are trying to force you in the empire to bow down to the emperor as a god from, from the from the physical perspective, if you're a Christian in the first century, what do you think is taking place? Does it look like on the surface God is winning? On the surface, does it look that way? What do you think? Not from the physical perspective, it doesn't. It looks like God is losing. It looks like Rome is winning and Rome is going to stomp out the church. It doesn't, it doesn't look good from the physical perspective, but John is able to see things from heaven's perspective. And in, from heaven's perspective, God is winning and God will win, even though things don't look well on the earth. That, that's something very important to realize here. Okay? So John sees God on the throne in all his glory. In all his glory. Imagine being able to see that. It seems that the saved, those who have overcome, were reigning with God. This is God letting his people know that he's going to win. Things look bad, but he is going to win. Now go back to the chapter, please. Verses 1 through 7. John looks and he sees an open door. He sees an open door into heaven. In verse 1, he hears a voice say, come. The voice says in verse number 1, Come up here, 
and I will show you. I'm going to show you what's going to take place after these things. So after Jesus has been, been seen by John, raised from the dead in glory, having victory over Hades and death, after Jesus personally addresses the seven churches, John is told, come into heaven. I'm going to show you what's going to happen after these things. I'm going to show you what's going to happen in, in, in the future. I'm going to show you what's going to happen when it comes to this battle taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. I'm going to show you what's going to happen. John says he's in the spirit. He's not in the physical body here going into heaven. Flesh and blood can I enter into the kingdom of God. He's in the spirit. This is a, a vision of some kind. He's able to, to have access into heaven in a spiritual sense. He sees God sitting on the throne and notice how no actual form is ascribed to God as he sits on the throne. What did Jesus say about God in John 4, 24? When describing God, he says God is a what? Unapproach he has an unapproachable light, but what somebody say it again? He's a spirit. You can't see a spirit, can you? You can't see a spirit. God is a spirit. He's not physical. The only time God was in the physical was when what happened? When through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became God and man at the same was God and man at the same time. But other than that, no one's ever seen God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a spirit. And so you can't ascribe a form to him. Can't ascribe a form to a spirit. Instead, what the scripture does is it, it puts precious, precious elements or stones. It ascribes precious elements or stones to God. I mean, how can you describe a spirit to fleshly people? I guess the best you can do is, is use these things that we view as valuable, these precious things we have in our, in our world to try to, to, to describe God's majesty in some way. And so there's Jasper mentioned. Remember, this is also in the foundation of the New Jerusalem. There's a rainbow around the throne. Again, none of this is literal. None of this is literal, okay? There's emerald. There's sapphire. There's all these different things, these precious things ascribed to God. The rest of the vision depicts God's judgment. The presence of the Holy Spirit, spirit beings worshiping around the throne, and God's people praising him for who he is and what he has done. And let me just say what he's going to do. Around the throne of God are 24 what? 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. Do you remember when Jesus told the apostles there was going to come a time when they sat on 12 thrones and did what? Judge. Judge the nations. So keep that in mind. The elders here are depicted as wearing what? What are they wearing? Okay, they're wearing golden crowns and white garments. So let's talk about those two things. The white garments, they're white typically in this kind of genre, represents what? Purity. Remember, Jesus is described as wearing white, right? Revelation 1. And so the people of God here are wearing white garments. They're pure. They're pure before God. They have golden crowns. What do you think the golden crowns represent? Crowns typically represent what? 
Someone say it louder, please. Victory. victory. Yes, victory. That's exactly right. I think this is victory here. I think this is God's people being represented with impurity and victory around the throne of God. So this idea of 24 thrones, I told you on Sunday that I believe, this is just my, my view on it, that this represents the totality of God's people. I think this represents the totality of God's people. God's people, the faithful from the old covenant and the faithful in the new covenant. 24. Half of that is 12. 12 in the apocalyptic genre represents completeness, typically, right? And so you have 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs, 12 tribes that made up the people of God under the old covenant. And then you got 12 apostles under the new covenant. Through the work of 12 apostles, people were entering to the kingdom of God. And so I think the number 24 here represents the people of God, the totality of all of those who are faithful to God and are in the Lord. Now, some other observations, verses 5 through 7. You got some other things here, and it's hard for me to, to try to tell you exactly what all this means because the scripture doesn't exactly tell us, but I, but I do want to mention it to you. You got the flashes of lightning, right? You got the sounds and the peals of thunder around the throne of God or, or at the throne of God. You got seven lamps burning before the throne. Now, obviously, when you see that, for those of you familiar with your Old Testament, you know that lamps were a big part of the tabernacle experience, the tabernacle worship. And here you have lamps in the very in the very presence of God, in God's very house. Maybe the idea of seven lamps is the idea of perfect light. God is light, and, and, and in heaven there is perfect light. There's, there's, the, there's the revelation of the perfect holiness of God. I think there's also likely a reference to the Holy Spirit here. Do you see the part where it talks about the seven spirits of God? The number seven again, idea of perfect and maybe that represents the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It certainly wouldn't contradict the fact that the Holy Spirit's in heaven, right? Yeah, I think that would make a lot of sense. I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down trying to break down every part of everything here. But I, I just want to emphasize this. Whatever you say about this stuff, whatever you say about it, I think you've got to conclude that none of it is to be taken literal. And you also have to conclude that all of it, whatever you say about it, is good and it is designed to emphasize the glory and the majesty of God. The glory and majesty of God as he sits on his throne. That's the main thing I want you to take away. I don't want you to get all bogged down trying to figure out what everything means. Be impressed by the fact that John is able to see God the Father on his throne. The glory of God. And how can one describe that? How could I describe it? How could you describe it? Even if we were blessed to see it like John. How can you describe God's glory? Maybe this is the best you can do right here. So let's, let's stop right there for just a moment. Any comments, questions about where we are up to this point? Yes, sir, Lance, go ahead. And then does somebody else have their hand up? Okay, go ahead, Lance. bring up a point about 
Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, they were not made blank. They were made based upon real things in heaven. And so if there seems to be some correlation between what we see in the tabernacle or the temple, the things that we see here, that's because what is in heaven is what those earthly things were modeled after. No, that's a good point. And so I, I, am I right in thinking that the, the, the Jewish, the, the candelabra that was in the, the temple, did it have seven lamps on it? I can't, I can't, I can't recall off the top of my head. I don't want to say yes or no, and, and, and can not have. That that I can't recall. That, that's fine, but that's a, the number exactly. Exactly, but yeah. I, I struggle not putting physical manifestations. I do too. Of this stuff, you know, and when, when, because that's just what we're familiar with. That, that's exactly right. Lance was talking about how it can be a struggle to not put attach physical things. When describing heaven, talking about heaven, the, the throne of God. And because of, we're physical beings, that's exactly right. All we know is the physical. That's all we know. And yet, the Bible is clear, and I, and I think we all know this and agree with this, that God is a spirit. You can't see God. And heaven is a spiritual place. You're not going to go into heaven like this. You're not going to be, be able to take any of your possessions into heaven. You're not going to see anything physical in heaven. It's all spiritual. And the only way we'll know exactly what all that looks like is when we get there. Then it'll all make more sense. So let's talk about the four living creatures. By the way, it was seven. It was seven? Okay. That, boy, that, that, makes a, that, that even makes it more powerful. Good. Thank you, Lance. All right, let's talk about the four living creatures. Four living creatures in the center and around the throne, verse number six. These four living creatures... And this is, all of this is very familiar to Ezekiel 1. If you've read Ezekiel 1 over the past few days, did you see the similarities between these creatures and Ezekiel 1? They're there. And read Daniel. I mean, this is Daniel also. But the, the, the four living creatures are described as having, are being full of what? Eyes. Front and behind. Front and behind. Let me ask you a question. Is God able to see all can God see everything all the time God sees everything all the time it doesn't matter if we're talking about Asia Australia Europe Africa Antarctica God sees everything all the time and so I think that's important because these creatures are described as being full of eyes in front and behind they can see everything Proverbs 15 and verse 3, Proverbs 15 and verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Hebrews 4 verse 13, Hebrews 4 13 says that there is no creature hidden from his sight. God sees everything. And so maybe the idea here, and this is the view I take on it, is everything you're seeing here, even with these four living creatures, represent aspects of God represent aspects of God as he sits on his throne. God is able to see all. How is that possible? How does he do that exactly? I can't explain it, but I know he does it. I know he's fully capable of doing it because he's God. But you got the, the four living creatures. The four living creatures. There's, what's the first creature? 
Lion, the second one. Calf, third one, is like what? Face of a man. That's interesting. And then the fourth one is a what? Flying eagle. Again, I'm going to keep emphasizing it. Don't make any of this literal. Don't make that mistake. Revelation 1, verse 1, it was signified. This is all signified stuff here. These are symbols expressing attributes of God, I believe. Symbols. Symbols. They are expressing attributes of God. Do we use symbols in our culture today? Do we use symbols to express things, to represent things? Let me pop some up on the slide. Tell me what you think about our symbols, because we use symbols. What is this symbol? What does that mean? That's somebody say, yeah, this is Uncle Sam here. Typically, when we see Uncle Sam, we know what that means, right? What about this one? What is this symbol? When you see that, what do you think of? What pops into your head? Freedom. It's the land of the free, isn't it? Land of opportunity. So you got Uncle Sam, you got Lady Liberty. What about this? What does that represent? That's the Olympics. And in the Olympics, what do you do? What do people do in the Olympics? They compete. Competition. So when I see that, I think of the Olympics, but I think of athletic competition. And what about that? What is that eagle? There's an eagle in there, isn't it? <laughs> we call it snail mail, but it's not, it wasn't supposed to represent that. That's not, that eagle is supposed to mean something. What is that eagle supposed to mean? Swiftness. Supposed to be swift. Now, we've attached snail mail to it now because of the technology, but originally this was a symbol of swiftness. You get it fast, right? So we understand symbols. We use symbols all the time. And there are many others we could, we could talk about. You can think of a ton of them right now as you sit in a pew. But if, I, if you can get that, that symbols represent things, then maybe this can make a little bit more sense here. And so I want to just see what you thought about this because the text doesn't exactly tell us what these things represent. I had some things that I studied. Uh, that make some kind of sense to me, but I would like to know what you thought about it first. What about the lion, the lion, the creature that's a lion? Yeah, strength. Jesus is actually called a lion from the tribe of Judah. We're going to talk about that. That's a big one. We're going to talk about that in detail, probably if not this Sunday uh, on next Wednesday. Because there's a lot going on with that lion from the tribe of Judah. I recommend that before we talk about Jesus being the lion from the tribe of Judah, you read Genesis 49. Read Genesis 49. Read about what Jacob said to Judah not long before he passed away. We usually talk a lot about Jesus being the lamb, and rightfully so. But Jesus is not just a lamb, he's also a lion. Now, isn't that like two extremes, right? Two things on the opposite end of the spectrum. So what does that mean? Well, I think here the lion represents strength. God is strong. God is mighty, like the king of the jungle, the lion. What about the calf? What do y'all think about the calf? 
Anybody got an idea on that one? Yeah, that's what I got, too. I got service. I got the idea of service. And certainly God serves his people. He ministers unto his people daily. What about the man with the, with the face like a man? What is that one about? That is, you know, when you think about us being made in the image of God, and I got a step-by-step coming out on that soon, what is that all that entails, or some of the things that entails. But one of the things that makes us superior to everything else God has made is our intelligence, our, our ability to reason, uh, reason better than anything else God has made. And, and certainly God is the highest level of intelligence. God knows everything about everything. And so I, I tend to lean towards intelligence when I think about the face of the man. And then, as we've talked about with the eagle, what'd you get on that one? Swiftness, right. That's what I put down, the idea of swiftness. And that would be something important for the early Christians here, the idea of God is swift in his judgment. God is swift when it comes to being there for his people. In fact, Jesus says in Revelation Several times, these things will soon come to pass. I'm coming quickly. So I, I, think, I think all those things make sense, it, at least in my mind they do. You, you may differ, and, and I can't be dogmatic on any of that stuff. But, but picture this in your mind. Picture this in your mind. You, you, you got John seeing God on the throne, and this vision shows us, what it's designed to show us is we serve an awesome an awesome, a majestic, a powerful, and a holy God. And so let's just go through that real quick. I want to quickly go through Revelation 4, start with verse 8, and just notice, kind of just working down the text, some of the things that, that we learn about God here. You know, we've been reading Psalms so far this year, and I told you, you learn a lot about God reading the Psalms. I think you learn a lot about God reading Revelation, too. I think you see here in verse 8, one of the things we learn about God is he is what? According to that verse, verse 8. He's all seen and what else? Holy. Holy, holy, holy. He's holy. He's set apart from sin. He has no fellowship with sin. He's perfectly holy. And he's called us to be holy. Remember 1 Peter 1, 14 through, through 16. And so we learn here that as God reigns on the throne, he is a holy God. And if we are going to approach his throne and be near him at the throne, we must be holy. We must strive to be holy. This, again, is, is similar to Isaiah 6. Isaiah saw the same thing. Verse number 9, we find the glory in the eternal nature of God. The glory in the eternal nature of God, the living creatures they give glory and honor and thanks to God. They glorify God, and really that's the purpose of a Christian. Did you know being a Christian is really all about glorifying God? It's all about bringing glory to God. Everything we do, it's about bringing glory to God. Our Bible study tonight, if we're not bringing glory to God through this Bible study, then we're wasting our time. It's about bringing glory to God. When we sing, when we pray, when we, when we try to reach the lost, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we give on the first day of the week, all of that is ultimately designed to bring God glory. It's about glorifying God. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I think chapter 10, whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all to the what? To the glory of God. 
It's all about glorifying God. And then the eternal nature of God. Notice as he sits on the throne, he lives what? Forever and ever. He lives forever and ever. Moses said God is from everlasting to everlasting. He's always been. He will always be. God told Moses, I am has sent you. That's language that's designed to emphasize the eternal nature of God. Verse number 10. In verse 10, we find God being announced as powerful and he's worthy of worship. Notice how the 24 elders, I believe, representing the totality of God's people, they fall down before God and they do what? They worship him. They worship him forever and ever. You know, if we, if we struggle now gathering for just a couple of hours or a few hours each week to worship God, guess what? We're going to really struggle in heaven. We're going to really struggle in heaven. Ain't going to be no March Madness in heaven going on. Ain't going to be no, no sports. There's not going to be no internet to play on, no, no video games, none of that stuff. That's all stuff. That's physical stuff. That's stuff that's what we do on the earth. Heaven's all about, it's all about worshiping God. Someone says, that sounds kind of boring. Well, there's another place, another alternative. But I don't think you want that. I don't think you want the alternative. So heaven is about worshiping God. The people here are worshiping God, and they do that forever and ever. And then verse 11, we find God being praised for his creative power. You know, there's just so many verses that emphasize God's creative power. We see them in the Psalms. We got Genesis 1, but here... They say, worthy are you, our Lord and our Father, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, not just some things. God created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Everything God made has a purpose. And everything God made was designed to bring him glory. Even the things we look at, like the platypus and the octopus, those as ugly as those creatures may be, guess what? When God made them, he made them for a purpose. In fact, when God made everything in the beginning, he said what? It is good. The octopus is good. The platypus is good. All things, God says, are good. And then when he made us, he said it's, it's, it's very good. We are his most superior creation. And so we find all these different things about God as he sits on the throne. And so what's the point of all of this? Well, this vision shows us we serve a God who is worthy of constant praise and worship. With this vision, God is showing his people that he's still in control. He's on the throne and everything's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It looks bad. It looks bad. Oh, yeah, it looks bad. But God's on the throne. He's on the throne in heaven. He's in full control. And let me just ask you something. Do you think that message that God is is trying to send his people in the first century, that he's on the throne and in control. You think that's a relevant message today? Isn't that something we need to know today and be reminded of today? Of course we do. Of course, as we live in the terrible times we're in and all these different things that discourage us and weigh us down, we need to always remember what John saw. God's in control. He's on the throne. We're going to win. God won't fail us. And so as we conclude this, let me give you some things to think about. How should we respond to all of this? Well, let me give you a few things. If you're taking notes, you can jot these things down. First, based on what we learn here about God on the throne, 
it should motivate us to not just worship God, but passionately worship God. Jesus said, John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship how? In spirit and truth. Now, in the church of Christ, we typically really emphasize that truth part, and rightfully so. We need to. We need to make sure we worship God according to the pattern that he's given us in his word. That's serious business, and we take that seriously. But I fear, I fear that as members of the church, while emphasizing one thing in the process, we've de-emphasized the other thing, which is the spirit part. If we don't do it all right, it really means nothing to God. We must worship with the right mechanics, but we got to put our hearts in it. We got to do it with zeal and passion and focus. And I worry, I worry that in the church there may be some people who've been Christians for 40, 50, 60 years, and they've never really worshiped in spirit. They've gone through the mechanics. They, they, you know, they take the bread and drink the juice. They do all that stuff but their heart's never been in it. They just worried about the mechanics. Check off, checklist Christianity. You know what that is? Just check it off. I've done it. I did it. And that's not pleasing to God. God needs, deserves passionate worship. We also need to look at this vision and take courage. We need to remember God sees everything. He's on the throne, and that should give us boldness and courage to press on every day and fight as we live in this sinful world. We need to be courageous people. God can't use people of fear. We also need to thoroughly trust God. The fact that we serve a God who's in full control, that demands our trust in him. We need to trust that if we pray to him and lean on him, he's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of us just like he was taking care of his people in the first century. Even if we have to die for his cause, it's still going to be good because we're going to be with him. We need to trust God. Number four, we need to be faithful and loyal to him. That's what Revelation is all about, isn't it? Revelation is, is ultimately a message designed to motivate these Christians to hang in there, to don't leave, don't leave God's army to go to the losing side. It may be tempting to bow down to the emperor's God. It may keep your job. It may keep you out of prison. It may keep you from, from dying, but you're going to the losing side ultimately. You need to understand that behind the curtain, the spiritual curtain, Rome is losing. They're going to lose. And if you go with them, you're going to lose too. You need to be faithful and loyal to God. That's the purpose of Revelation. And then finally, this vision should motivate us to be busy about God's work. Remember when Isaiah saw this, this similar vision in Isaiah 6, what did God tell him? He said, I need somebody to go preach to my people. And Isaiah said, here am I. He said, me. Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw something impressive in Ezekiel 1. That was God catching his attention and preparing him and calling him to go preach to a rebellious people. And then John, as we're going to keep seeing, all of this is designed to catch John's attention and to prepare him and call him to go and preach a bittersweet message to his people and even the enemies of his people. And so God's glory, God's majesty, God's holiness demands that we be busy about his work. That's the proper way ultimately to respond to God and what, he, and what he's all about. And so as we conclude this, 
where are we here? Well, we looked at Revelation 1. The scene is set in Revelation 1. We saw the road signs, the guideposts. Jesus is in his glory, raised from the dead, Revelation 1. Revelation 2 through 3, Jesus wants the churches to know that he knows about them. He knows where they are, what they're doing, what they're going through, what they need to do better. And in Revelation 4, we got a vision of God, John being invited into heaven to see a vision of God the Father on his throne. All of this is ultimately designed to get us to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is one of the most critical chapters in the book because in chapter 5, the outcome, the outcome to the battle of Revelation is revealed. You remember the book with the seven seals? Remember that book? That book is the DVR version of the battle that's taking place in Revelation. That, that, that chapter is designed to show us what's going on, why it's going on, who can lead God's people to victory, and what's the result is going to be because of that victory. Revelation 5 is a critical chapter, and so I urge you, if you can be here Sunday, please be here because we're going to, be, we're going to tackle Revelation 5. We're going to spend a couple of classes on that. Read Genesis 49 about, and see if you can get some background on Jesus being a lion from the tribe of Judah. All that is going to lead, I think, to a rich study over the next couple of classes. Are there any final comments anybody wants to make tonight regarding what we've studied here? Anything? Thank you all very much. I appreciate it so much. God bless you. Uh, I look forward to the Lord today. We can keep studying this. Thank you.